morning, church. Years ago, Deb and I were invited to do a Bible conference in, in Colorado, and some friends uh, picked us up at the, uh, at the airport, and uh, we were riding to their home where we would be staying, and they were talking about the Millers, and that uh, the Millers were on their doorstep, and that he, the husband had driven them out and was throwing things at them, and I was, I was thinking, what, what's up with the Millers? They must be your enemies or something like that. Well, it turns out that Millers are actually locusts that uh, creep in every crack and so forth. They're in the house. They're everywhere. Well, when we read Joel chapter 2, um, this was a locust attack on, on Israel. Towards the end, it says they do not break ranks. They rush the city. They run the walls. They climb into houses through every window like a thief. And that's the nature of the day of the Lord. At the time of Joel, a large locust attack came upon Israel as an agrarian culture. Uh, such an attack represented famine, death, disease, the day of the Lord. As we continue our study in 1 Thessalonians, we're dealing with that very subject this morning. It's in chapter 5. If you turn there, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 11. The day of the Lord. If you have found your way there, would you join me as we stand together for the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning at verse 1, Now as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come, just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in the darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, those who get drunk get drunk at night, but since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. Let's pray. Father, this morning we deal with a very serious subject, something that's going to happen, though people don't anticipate it. Uh, we hear our culture with all of its warnings about economic failure, about global warning, warming, about wars and all sorts of things, and yet there is uh, before us an inevitable day that will be unlike any that the world has ever experienced. Father, we pray this morning as we look at your word and think upon this sobering subject, reality, uh, that we would do so with eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to believe. Father, some of us came in here and the last thing on our mind is the great day of reckoning. And we pray, Father, I pray that we would all leave together today with a shared reality of its inevitability in our role and our position in all of it. And so we pray for the Holy Spirit to come and to teach us, to convict us of sin, righteousness, and the judgment to come. 
may he do his work in us and through us. We do pray for the one who preaches, his sins are many, hide him in the shadow of the one who will come. We pray, Father, as we think about eschatological subjects, that we would not just be challenged this morning, but changed, not just confronted, but leave here conformed to the image of Christ. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Please be seated. You know, every Sunday for millennia, faithful followers of Jesus Christ have assembled to worship. And the worship assembly of believers on Sundays has taken place through persecutions and wars and famines, disease, droughts, blizzards, revolutions, economic collapses. They've done so in houses and caves and catacombs and in the wilderness. The church has gathered for worship on the first day of the week against all obstacles. The churches gather for worship in season and out of season because the first day of the week, this day, is the Lord's day. Every Sunday is Jesus' day, the day that Christ rose victoriously from the grave. The first day belongs to our Savior. Today is the Lord's day. And faithful people, believers in all places at all times have assembled to worship on the Lord's day. And that has continued and will continue until the Lord's day gives way to the day of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 2 in our text this morning, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come, just like a thief in the night. The day of the Lord is that day when Jesus Christ returns in his glory, full glory. And with the return of Christ on the day of the Lord, that day will be glorious for some and beyond horrifying for others. Even before Jesus came to earth the first time, the Old Testament had a lot to say about the day of the Lord. Horrifying to some, glorifying to others. For instance, Joel chapter 2, we read verse 1 and 2, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near, a day of darkness and doom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, there has never been anything like it, nor will there ever be again after it. Or Amos chapter 5, 18 through 20. At last, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be for you? It will be darkness and not light. As when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him, or when he goes home and leans his hand against the wall and a snake bites him. That is, there's no escape. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness in it? Or Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 14 and following. Near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Listening, listen, the day of the Lord. In it, the warrior cries out bitterly, a day of wrath, that is a day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities in the high-towered corners. However, the Old Testament doesn't only describe the day of the Lord as terrifying, but also glorious. 
Joel chapter 3, 14 and following, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon will grow dark. The stars lose their brightness. The Lord roars from Zion as he utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and earth tremble. But, but the Lord is a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain, for Jerusalem will be holy, and strangers will pass through it no more. That's referring to foreign armies. And, the day, and in that day the mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water, and a spring will go forth from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. Or even Zechariah 14. In that day there will be no light or luminaries to dwindle, it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, and it will come about that at evening time there will be light. And verse 9 says, And the Lord will be king over all the earth in that day, and the Lord will be the only one. His name will be the only one. The day of the Lord, the return of Christ, will be a great blessing to some and a horrifying day to others. And whether it's horrifying or a blessing has everything to do with where you stand where you stand in relationship to the Lord when the day of the Lord occurs. On the day of Pentecost, Apostle Peter stood up and preached. In Acts chapter 2, verses 19 through 21, he describes the horrors associated with the day of the Lord. But then he concludes in verse 21 saying this, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be, what, saved. Since we're talking about the day of the Lord this morning, I'm going to take us not only to the text we read this morning, our key passage, but to another text. And that is because in the New Testament, God's word gives us two of the most definitive appeals concerning the day of the Lord in two, two places. One of them are text, but I'd ask you to mark our, time, our place in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and look with me, if you would, at 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 3. Peter begins, know this, first of all, know this. That in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it has from the beginning of creation. That is to say, yeah, you Christians talk about a second coming, you talk about a final judgment and all of that. It seems the same to me. Uh, that is to say, they see the world as does our culture, the unbelieving world, rather as a, as a circle, a circle of life. Things just continue rotationally, repetitively. But history is not a circle. History is linear. It had a beginning and it will have an end. In verse 5, it says, For when they maintain this, that existence is circular, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. That is to say, it had a beginning. And yet, verse 6, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. That is to say, listen, the fact I'm talking to you about a coming judgment, the world has already been judged. We have a historical, living, biblical example. God's judgment 
has fallen in the past upon the world. So there is not only a beginning to history, there will also be an end. Verse 7, but by his word, by God's word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. By the way, that's what you call real global warning, warming. <laughs> Reserve for fire, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness but rather is patient towards you, not wishing any to perish, but to all come to repentance. Why has the Lord tarried? Patience. Not wishing any to perish, but all come to repentance. However, verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come. There is a day when his patience will wear out, Come to an end, it will come like a thief, verse 10, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening for the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat, but according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless, blameless. And regard the patience of our God as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you. As also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things in which some things are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do also the rest of scriptures to their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the air of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. Verse 18, but grow. In the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. In these 16 verses, this coming inevitable day is called the day of the Lord. It is called the day of judgment. It is called the day of, uh, the day of destruction of ungodly men. It is called the coming day of God, and it is called the day of eternity in 16 verses. It will be quite a day. And so I'd ask you to go back to where we began, 1 Thessalonians 5. Again, two New Testament distinctive appeals concerning the day of the Lord. One we just looked at, 2 Peter 3, but the other is our text, 1 Thessalonians 5. And as we look at these verses, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11, I want us to really understand what it is that Paul's saying. I want his appeal to affect us because this is of ultimate importance. What is Paul telling us about the day of the Lord? Number one, if you're taking note, the timing of the day of the Lord is unknown. It's unknown. 
Verse 1 and 2, now as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. The timing of the day of the Lord is unknown, but that is not to say that the day of the Lord is not determined, because it is. And again, the divine attribute that is in play is God's patience. God's patience. And why would God be patient? Because God knows that when the day of the Lord comes, the eternal destiny of all who have ever lived will be sealed, determined, fixed, and final. God is patient. Again, nothing needs to be written to you about the times, epics. You yourselves know it'll come like a thief in the night. Yes, the Thessalonian church had lots of questions about eschatology, the doctrine of end times. One thing they knew full well is that the timing of the day of the Lord is unknown. And again, what's so amazing to me is that that which this church, the Thessalonian church, at the time of Paul knew fully well seems to be unknown to so many others. People have been predicting the return of Jesus Christ for a long, long time. I can take you as far back as one of the early church fathers by the name of Irenaeus, who predicted that Jesus returned in uh, A.D. 500. And he based his, Old Testament, his prediction on the Old Testament dimensions of Noah's Ark. Pope Sylvester II predicted Jesus' return in A.D. 1000. He believed that Jesus returned exactly 1,000 years after his birth. The astronomer Johannes Stouffer believed Jesus returned in February 2015-24. He based it on planetary alignments around uh, the constellation Pisces. The Anabaptist Thomas Munster said Jesus returned in 1525. The math uh, mathematician Michael Stifler said uh, he mathematically calculated that Jesus would return at exactly at 8 a.m. on October 19, 1533. Ann Lee, who is the leader of the Shakers movement, said Jesus returned in 1770. Richard Brothers, between uh, 1793 and 1795. Richard Brothers, by the way, committed suicide in an insane asylum. Charles Taze Russell, the founder of Jehovah's Witness, calculated Jesus' return in 1874. Joseph Smith, founder of the Mormons, in his Doctrines of Covenants, said, I was once praying very earnestly to know the time of the coming of the Son of Man when I heard a voice repeat to me the following, Joseph, my son, if thou livest until thou art 85 years old, thou shalt see the face of the Son of Man. If you live to your 85, you'll see Jesus' return. Joseph Smith was born December 1805 which would make the date of the uh, return of Christ uh, no later than 1890. Herbert W. Smith, founder of the Worldwide Church of God, said Jesus returned in 1935. Oops, it didn't happen. Recalculated in 1943. Oops, again. 1972. Oops, again. 1975. Never mind, right? Seventh-day Adventist, Jesus returned October 1964. Hal Lindsey, author of the late great planet Earth sometime in the 1980s. Harold Camping Jr. of Family Radio, May 21st, 2021. Jack Van Empty, Jesus returned in 2012. Gene Dixon, the psychic, somewhere between 2020 and 2037. They're all wrong. You, brother, know full well that the coming of the day of the Lord will be like a thief. In the night. No one knows. 
No one knows. But again, although the timing of the day of the Lord is unknown, the day of the Lord and its timing is determined. I want you to listen very carefully to this text, just two verses. It's from the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 27 and 28. The writer says this, Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. It has been appointed. It's happening once. Appointed as was the first coming of Christ, so the second coming of Christ is equally appointed. Once, as Jesus died once for sin, so the second coming, the day of the Lord, will happen only once. In the annals of all human history. Once. The second thing I would draw your attention to from this text is not only is the timing of the day of the Lord unknown but that the timing of the day of the Lord will be counter-propaganda. Verse 3 is so interesting. Verse 3 says, While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. While they are saying peace and safety. The Thessalonians knew full well what this meant, Peace and safety was the mantra of the Roman Empire. Peace and safety was Roman propaganda in the first century ancient Near Eastern world. This was Rome's false messaging. It's quite a bit like our own false messaging, where we have leaders telling us everything's okay, we've got things under control, they're in our hands, you're all good. We're taking care of climate change. We're taking care of seatbelt rules. We're taking care of gas ovens. We've got it all under control, peace and safety, when sudden destruction will come upon the human strain. The Old Testament identifies false prophets as heralding peace and safety. Jeremiah 6.14 says, They have healed the, brokenhearted of, the brokenheartedness of my people superficially, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Ezekiel 13.10, it is definitely because they have misled my people by saying peace when there is no peace. Micah 3.5, false prophets who lead my people astray crying peace, peace. I think all the way back to the 15th century Reformation in the event that kicked it off, which was Luther hanging his 95 theses on the Wittenberg Castle door, and in those 95 theses, which were rebukes against the false theology of the, of the Roman church at that time, of those 95, towards the end, the 92nd thesis of 95 said, Luther cries out, away with all its false prophets who say to the peace, uh, people of Christ, peace, peace, when there is no peace. That is to say that Luther looked at the whole Roman Catholic system at that time, the sale of indulgence and independence and all of that kind of stuff. And he says, none of this can make somebody right with Christ. You're selling this stuff and teaching this stuff, but it doesn't create for peace with God. Peace 
peace when there is no peace. I think of one of the most pensive moments in the New Testament. It's recorded, among other places, in Luke 19, verse 41 and following. It talks about Jesus. It says, when he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. But now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw a barricade against you, surround you, hem you in on every side. Jesus looks over Jerusalem and weeps because they have rejected the only means of peace offered to them by God. That is himself. There is no peace apart from the Prince of Peace. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them. The Christ-rejecting powers that be tell us, don't worry, we've got things under control, and the unbelieving world believes the propaganda and lives life as if there is not a coming period at the end of the linear line of history. Matthew 24, Jesus said it this way, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. That's exactly how the day of the Lord is going to be. Marrying, giving marriage, eating, drinking, not caring, not realizing, not concerned, until it's too late. And it's interesting that, by the way, when Jesus says that in Matthew 24, when he says, in those days before the flood, the word flood there is cataclysmos, and where we get the word cataclysm. They didn't think about it until the cataclysm. The word literally means the inundation, the inundation, to be swallowed up in the day of the Lord. Thirdly, the timing of the day of the Lord is unknown. The timing of the day of the Lord is counter-propaganda. It is thirdly, unexpected to many. Unexpected to many. Notice verse 4 through 7. But you, brethren or not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep due to sleeping at night, those who get drunk get drunk at night. Darkness and light. The light will be prepared for the day of the Lord. Darkness will not. Darkness, by the way, is, in the New Testament, it is the dominion of sin and unbelief, darkness. John 3.19, men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds are evil. Romans 12.1, the unbeliever's mind is said to be darkened. Romans 2.19, the believer, unbeliever lives in darkness. 
And the good news, the New Testament tells us then when we as sinners come to Christ, we pass from darkness to light. Ephesians 5a, you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. But you, brethren, again, our texts are not in darkness that the day would overtake you. The day of the Lord will not overtake the, the believer. The day of the Lord will overtake the unbeliever. And by the way, it's so interesting. We just think about that thought. The idea overtake, catalambano, means to grasp, to catch, to seize. And there's two ways to understand it. One way, probably the most self-evident, is that the judgment, when it comes on the day of the Lord, will seize unbelievers. There will be nowhere to hide, no place to escape, no time to change, no time to, to repent. It will be catalambano. They will be grasped. They will be caught. They will be seized. Nowhere to go. No time to change. But another way in which that word is used, catalambano, to grasp, seize, is the idea of grasping or seizing something in terms of understanding. Coming to understand in a moment something that was previously unknown. To perceive in a moment that which was formerly alien, unthought of. And when the day of the Lord comes, they will grasp what they previously were blind to. The unbeliever so deceived, believing the peace and saving mantra of our world. I'm a good person. If there's a God, he's certainly pleased with me. And then suddenly the day of the Lord. Where the truth, light, reality will be seized and grasped in a moment with nothing to do. And Paul gives a metaphor to describe how this will work. In verse 7, Paul describes two nighttime activities, sleeping and getting drunk. Sleeping and getting drunk. What's the difference? Well, nighttime sleeping is a metaphor for spiritual indifference. Difference. It involves the mind. Mind. However, nighttime drunkenness is a metaphor for Spiritual evil, behavior, behavior. And so the unbelieving world doesn't necessarily have to be engaged in nighttime evil. It can just simply be nighttime sleeping, indifferent, blind, calloused, confused, deceived. But there is those who are engaged in nighttime spiritual evil as well, their behavior. One of the early church fathers, John Christum, said this, quote, For it is just as corrupt and wicked men do all things in the night, escaping the notice of all and enclosing themselves in darkness. For tell me, he says, does not the adulterer watch for the evening and the thief for the night? Does not the violator of tombs carry out his trade in the night? For those of the night, Jesus will be as a thief in the night. Do you get that? Have you ever thought of that phrase in terms of to whom will he be a thief in the night? To those who are of the night. For those who are of the light, Jesus will not come as a thief in the night. He will come as the dawning sun of a new day. 
thief in the night to those who are of the night. Fourthly, the day of the Lord unknown, counter-propaganda, unexpected to many. But for us, the day of the Lord calls us to faithfulness and hope. Look at verse 8 through 11. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Listen to this great promise. For God has not destined us for wrath, but obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake, that is living when it happens, or asleep, that is deceased when it happens, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another, build up one another, just as you are also doing. For God has not destined us for wrath. Paul uses the imagery of a soldier's attire, breastplate, and helmet. And the attire really refers to what Paul's saying in this. He's really telling us how to be prepared for the day of the Lord. Armor yourself. Armor yourself. Armor is protection. Protection against the enemy's weapons, of which the false claim of peace and safety is one of those weapons. Arm yourself. Arm yourself with faith. That's belief in the truth. Arm yourself with love. First of all, love for God and then others. And arm yourself with hope. The hope of salvation and the security of our salvation at the, at the day of, uh, of uh, the Lord. Verse 10, I want you to look at it carefully. The certainties of our hope. The certainties of our hope. In our mixed up, screwed up world, when this thing unfolds and the cataclysm arrives, we have three certainties. Certainty number one, God has not destined us for wrath but salvation. Again, the day of the Lord, the return of Christ, will bring wrath for some and salvation to others. For us who are in Christ, God has not destined us for that wrath but for salvation. How so? Certainty number two. The Lord Jesus Christ died for us. That is to say, the wrath that is due us has been fully paid upon Christ. It has been fully expended upon Jesus. God's wrath poured out on him. God treated him who knew no sin as if he had lived our life. On the cross, the full wrath of God poured out upon Christ. The wrath that will fall upon the unbelieving world on the day of the Lord has already been expiated on Christ in our place. He's already stood condemned. And then certainty number three, whether we are alive or deceased, when the day of the Lord occurs, those who are in Christ will live eternally with Christ. Therefore, Encourage one another and build up one another just as you are doing with these truths. Is God slow? Does it seem like a long time? It'll happen. Just a litany of writings and I'll be done. And I guess I'm reading these primarily to give you a sense, in a sense not only of the reality of the day of the Lord, but a sense of its history. 
And so from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 13, wail for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore all hands will fall limp and every man's heart will melt. They will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. And they will wither like a woman in labor. They will look to one another in astonishment. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. From Isaiah to the the prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel 30, for the day is near, even the day of the Lord. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for all the nations. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Joel, chapter 1, consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the elders, the inhabitants of the land, to the house of the Lord our God, and cry out to the Lord at last for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Amos, chapter 5, at last, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and night. That is to say, some people think, oh, come on, and they're unprepared. From Amos, we go on to Jobadiah, chapter 1, for the day of the Lord draws near, and all the nations, as you have done, it will be done to you, your dealings will return on your own head. From Obadiah, we go to Zephaniah chapter 1. And those who have turned back from following the Lord, and those who have not sought the Lord or inquired of him, be silent before the Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. And the Lord has prepared for himself a sacrifice, and he has consecrated his guests. Old Testament, New Testament, Apostle Peter, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, the elements will be destroyed with tents heat, the earth and all of its works burned up. What a warning. What a warning. Um, It's going to happen. Horrifying to some. Glorious to others. And that is why even in light of the horror, we are taught to say as Christians what? Even so, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, we thank you for your word and its warning. And it seems to me that the only reason you would over and over and over and over and over again warn us and call us to preparation is because of your love for us. Father, you have told us that it will happen, and it will happen. And in those warnings always we find the repeated encouragement um, to be ready to come to Christ to know Jesus as Savior to be in him, to be found in him to be saved and you know Father as we pray I, you know, my heart is that every person in this room would not leave here unaffected but be deeply affected by this um, I think Father how we would react if we were living in Israel or Ukraine, and we heard sirens go off, warnings go off. How would we react? Or if we were a pilot in an airplane and the the cockpit sirens went off, warnings went off, how would we react? And here in your word, you give us something so much greater, so much more dire, so much more urgent, and so much more eternal. The sirens go off over and over and over again. And how do we react? God, convict us and help us to be a prepared people, to be a prepared church. 
And we do see the days of Noah around us. We do see all the signs of the times. And yet the world goes on eating, drinking, marrying, and giving a marriage as if the sirens aren't wailing. So we ask you for your grace. We commit ourselves to your care. And we say again, even so, come Lord Jesus. And we ask these things in Christ's name and all God's people again said, amen. Would you join me as we stand together for the blessing? My brothers and sisters, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you, here it is, peace. Amen. Amen.